0: Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com, or have left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos. Now, I really cannot guarantee that if you leave a question in another video besides my Q&A videos that I'm going to get it um, in the comments there, but uh, you you can try. You can certainly try. The most certain way to get me a question is to email it to me, though. All right. That all being said, uh, I wanted to plug the podcast this week because the Sensibly Speaking podcast uh, was at the third and final part. Of my uh, long-form interview with Katherine Olson, a recent escapee from Scientology's Sea Organization, who had all kinds of interesting current information to share with us, and which built on uh, the podcast I did a few weeks ago with The Insider, who also has been dishing on Inside Skinny and Info. And this has opened up, by the way, in the, sort of in the back lines for me, uh, off of the public-facing stuff that I do. All kinds of avenues of information coming my way right now about what's going on in Scientology. It has been fascinating. And I also wanted you guys to know that um, that my channel is apparently watched by quite a few people, including people who are still in Scientology, that my, this work is now reaching there, or has been reaching there. And I am often the last to find out about it, and that's fine. This work is free, and it is for them, and it is for people who are in other destructive cults, and it is for the family and friends of people who are in destructive cults, and that's pretty much everybody in the world. So uh, anyway, just uh, really nice. It feels very, very um, validating in a lot of ways to see the direct results of my work uh, and, or the, um, you know, not so the indirect results as well, and know that I had, you know, something to do with making somebody's life a little bit better. That is always what this whole thing has been about from day one. So anyway, uh, that's uh, certainly mysterious, uh, in terms of, I'm not telling you everything there, but, um, but it's always nice to know that this work matters. Uh, So I hope you guys will check out that podcast with Catherine and the other sensibly speaking podcasts I've put up recently. Uh, And also, of course, I will encourage you guys to check out the Critical Conversation show that happens live every Friday night. That audience has also been growing a little bit, and I'm very, very happy about that, as I would love to have more live interaction with you guys. And the best way to do that every week, Friday night, 6 o'clock Mountain Standard Time right here. And uh, anyway, yeah, I hope you guys will check that show out on the playback because uh, it's available for you there. Uh, this week we had some fun chatter about Scientology music videos and some current events and, you know, we get into stuff beyond just uh, the, the cult paradigm stuff, but I try to keep it focused in that realm at least. Okay, now we've got a lot of questions for uh, answers this week, including some uh, new flash answers. I asked you guys for some last week and you delivered, so I will be... Uh, doing that segment uh, as well. So watch for that. And here we go with the first question. Steph CLO. As an ex Org member and Scientologist, it was hard to ask for any help from therapists when I left as psychiatrists and psychologists were the evil ones. The way they get you to believe that is by digging into mass shootings and saying, look, he was on Prozac, which was very true in some cases. Or they say there is no such thing as a chemical imbalance, and we take it as fact. Words like dopamine hits or serotonin were always, in my mind, psych terms, so completely disregarded as idiotic and made up to sell more drugs. How did you get in the frame of mind to start believing them versus LRH? I think you know where I'm going with the whole us versus them. Oh, Steph, I absolutely understand where you're going with the us versus them. And fortunately for me, psychiatry was was actually um, the first or second topic I tackled right at the beginning, right at the, right at the exit gates, you could say, when I went down the internet rabbit hole back in 2013 and sort of, oh, wow, Scientology is kind of full of shit and L. Ron Hubbard's kind of full of shit. And... Uh, wow, there's a lot of lies here. L. Ron Hubbard's biography is a complete fantasy, as told by the Church of Scientology and as told by L. Ron Hubbard. That's all nonsense. Um, you know, when I found out what the OT levels consisted of, what, what the big secret was, that was the, one of the biggest letdowns ever uh, for a number of reasons. And of course, most important of all, when I realized that I had only been a pawn on a chessboard uh, in a game, you know, playing part of a game that I didn't even know about, wasn't part of, wasn't privy to, you know, that that really, really upset me. And, I, and I'm positive that uh, my emotional reaction, the anger, the rage that I felt in those moments, and really, you know, for a long time after, Um, I'm not alone in that. I am positive that all of us had that come to Jesus kind of moment, uh, so to speak. I didn't go to Jesus, but you know what I mean? Um, so having had such a like, oh wow, kind of moment, I then got very curious about, well, okay, so it cannot be true. It simply cannot be that 27 years of experience with this subject matter is nothing but lies. There has to be stuff in here that's true, and there has to be stuff in here that's complete nonsense. And that's what I spent the next many years sifting through. Uh, But I started with, once I kind of realized that, I realized it's up to me, it's on me now, to sort through this and figure it out for myself, because I can't go to, not only can I not go to L. Ron Hubbard, I can't go to any guru. I can't, you know, how do I trust anybody now? Anybody who says they're an authority figure, who says they have knowledge, that doesn't mean anything, right? You got to show me the money. You got to show me the authority. You have to prove it to me. Um, Because I just don't buy it anymore, right? As Just because you say you're something. Because L. Ron Hubbard said, remember, he was a lot of things. The Church of Scientology claims L. Ron Hubbard was fully professional in like 24 or 27 different fields of of, of work. Uh, it's all bullshit, right? L. Ron Hubbard was not a professional in almost anything. He was a, I will grant, he was a professional sailor. He knew how to sail around on the ocean. And uh, he was a glider pilot. I'll give him that. And he was certainly a professional writer, but that didn't make him a very good one. You know, so as far as anything else, he was a total dilettante. He was a total amateur, Uh, and and the the um his products, the things he produced, uh, you know, are demonstrative of of that. Okay, so anyway, enough of bagging on Hubbard. But I'm trying to figure out who I can listen to and who I can't. What should I What should I take in as real and not? Well, let me take the first two biggest things. That were in my face in early 2013. And those two things were psychiatry and LGBTQ, right? Because there was I was suddenly in the social media world and in the big wide world. And I was, you know, sort of as they say in Scientology, I was suddenly thrust onto the calm lines of the world. And um and I got curious about them. And I realized that, well, if Hubbard was so full of shit about all this stuff. Then what he had to say about LGBT is probably not true. They're probably not all a bunch of psychotic, devious, you know, conniving scoundrels who can't ever be trusted and, you know, to a person. And they should all be put on a barge and blown up like the lepers in Guatemala or whatever. That's a stupid story he tells in, in Science of Survival, right? I didn't agree with that anymore, but I didn't know what to think. And, uh, at the time, you know, uh, on that topic, I was, I was following George Takai from, you know, from Star Trek fame. And I was learning all kinds of things from, from his posts and then diving into that stuff. But on the psych front, I realized, okay, I had already read all of, or a ton of stuff that was in Scientology about psychiatry. I'd read every bulletin and, um a Freedom Magazine article that I could get my hands on while I was still in Scientology about the subject of psychiatry and science and scientists. Hubbard wrote an issue called Captive Brains at one point where he discusses, I think, how science has been sort of compromised by big government and and is used for authoritarian purposes. And, you know, true enough, that does happen. But that doesn't mean that, you know, we should be painting the entire subject of science with a black brush of, of awful and that's exactly what L. Ron Hubbard does, because it serves his purposes for, you know, Scientologists to think that scientists don't know what they're talking about, and they're all just a bunch of scoundrels and scumbags. Uh, and they're not, not by any stretch. Uh, science has its problems, and it has its bad apples, just like every other field of human endeavor. To expect perfection out of any subject is is ludicrous. It's a, you know, that's that's on you. You're you're the you're the one who's wrong for expecting perfection. Um, you know, people are going to make mistakes and the subject of science is also not well understood. And this was something I had to get my wits around. That's why I'm talking about this is, is this is what I dived into learning in, in looking at, well, I got to look at psychiatry now, but first I had to kind of back up a little bit and look at science as a subject, as a word, as a topic, right? Because Hubbard has all kinds of landmines thrown into Scientology all throughout his lectures and writings about how bad, poor, awful, and corrupt science is as a a subject, as a body. All of science. That's crazy. You can't say anything generalized about an entire body like that any more than you can say it about religion or about government. I mean, look at the number of variety and, and the nuances and layers, right? If you really want to talk truth generalities really aren't going to do. So, with science, I had to kind of blow past all of Hubbard's bullshit, but it was still like kind of in there, and I had to, piece by piece, pull these landmines out of the ground, kind of dig them up, right, And, and hopefully not have them blow up. So, getting my wits around the fact that science isn't a black or white, good or bad, you know, moral or immoral sort of thing... That it's actually a whole huge collection of tons of different disciplines, and they all just sort of try in their fumble bumble human way to apply a procedure, a set of procedures to uncovering and learning and predicting knowledge, right? Phenomena, things that happen. And psychiatry and psychology are part of this picture. Okay, this is so I go from science to these two sciences. And these are now, indeed, what we consider sciences, soft sciences, right? But they are there. Uh, Psychiatry may be a little harder than psychology in that it's got, you know, it's connected up with medicine. Don't know that that was really the best choice or a really good idea, uh, actually, and that even that whole concept is now being reviewed and thought about very seriously by a lot of people, right? Is psychiatry really best served by a medical model? Should we be looking at mental illness as illness, right? Something you can stick somebody with a vaccine or stick somebody with a, with a syringe and you're going to cure them of their mental issues. Is that really how we should be looking at this? You go through the history of these topics and I we kind of reviewed in my process, well, what is the history of this? And sure enough, I had learned an awful lot of history in Scientology about the history of psychiatry going back to its foundings and, um, the Bedlam days and the insane asylums or the, you know, the sanatoriums and, and then Freud and his, his so-called contributions and efforts and Young and Adler and, and, you know, um, James and all, all the guys coming on up the line, Skinner with his bloody Skinner boxes in the fifties and conditioning and where science kind of went and where psychiatry and psychology went there. Um, you do have a bit of a dark past there, right? You have a lot of people who uh, had various attitudes about human beings and human beings in distress and insane human beings, right? And sometimes it, you couldn't quite tell <laughs> which who was the sane and the insane in this relationship with some of these people who were running around the country doing transorbital leucotomies and lobotomies and things like this, you know, as many as they could do you get some pretty sick stuff in psychiatry's history, legitimately barbaric, awful atrocities. And you go, wow, that's really bad. And it is. But that's not psychiatry now. So, you know, is, it, are the origins, you have to start answering questions for yourself like, well, if, if the origin of something is awful, does that mean that its entire future is therefore never redeemable, never fixable, never able to evolve beyond its, its not-so-great origins. And how much of those not-so-great origins are we looking at through the lens of now versus then? Because if you look at things from a sort of a more relative point of view, where you're looking at it from how it was viewed when it was happening versus how you think about it now— this becomes really really vital for critical thinking because you have to look at the people who were there at the time in the culture and context of the time to look at deciding whether these are malicious of uh, you know ill intent or are they were they just trying the best they could with the tools they had and the culture and the knowledge that that they had and the beliefs that that were rampant at that time this is no excuse for barbarism or, or atrocities. It's merely an attempt to understand, so that we can continue to understand the thing into the future. These were the you know this is all kind of heavy academic talk here, maybe for some people. But these are the things I was dealing with when I was when I start when I got out of Scientology's headspace, and started trying to figure out what my new headspace should be and what should inform it, right? What should my values be? What should my, what, what is the the truth about this? <laughs> you know, you're going to realize truth is a changing thing and it, and it should be because it evolves. You get more information, you get more knowledge, you get more experience. Oh, right. You get more nuance, stuff like that. All right. All of this stuff was stuff I had to learn. And in learning it, it gave me a better, more well rounded picture of psychiatry and psychology. But then that led me to the neuroscience. Um, And that's where, you know, serotonin and dopamine hits and things like that. You hear me talk about these things. I, um, you know, one of the most informative things I ever did, and I really want to do it again. Is uh, went through all of Robert Sapolsky's lectures on um, human behavioral biology, where he covered a whole bunch of buckets uh, or, or domains of knowledge, right? Biology, sociology, psychology, endocrinology. I mean, you have a number of different fields that can tackle a problem, and you come to realize that each different field is going to approach it in a different way. And really, the well rounded, wise, way to look at, it, at at a thing is to examine what all of those fields are coming up with and kind of amalgamate oh okay okay there's a sort of a well there's this but then from this angle there's this and from here there's this and when it came to the biology of our brain of, of the neuroscience of it that's where those chemicals the neurotransmitters and the, and the whole process of what's going on what what is a neuron Anyway, I didn't even know, you know, the entire time I was in Scientology and bitching and moaning about exactly what you wrote in your question, Steph, about how we would say, oh, we would laugh and ridicule psychiatry for saying that mental illness was a chemical imbalance in the brain. And we had no idea what chemicals, what processes, what could be in balance or out of balance, because it's absolutely a fact that you can have chemical imbalances in your brain and that that will absolutely affect your thinking and your behavior. There, no question about it. There are also physical deformities, lesions, uh, you know, things like that that can cause all kinds of uh, brain problems. There's, there's a lot of stuff. Frontal lobe damage right? We learn about this with football players uh, most spectacularly or combat veterans, right? You get too much uh, frontal or temporal lobe damage. It's going to change you sometimes very permanently and and most of the time not for the better. And you start learning about this and you go, holy cow, there really is something to this. And it doesn't say that we totally understand all the processes because we do not and unfortunately i came to learn that we're in a state of time and discovery where we don't have all those answers that that some people think we have and we don't we don't know yet but we are actively truly and and with good intent trying to find out and once that became clear the, the once i was able to sort of take the moral dilemma out of the picture right and realize that that it's a, that just like any other field of endeavor, there's good guys and bad guys and neutral guys and uncaring guys, all in the mix, right? And guys, I say guys, I mean you know, people. They're all there, they're all represented in any field you care to look at. So how you emphasize what you're looking at says more about you than it does the reality of that subject matter. And, and I had to then go kind of full circle back to, well, what does, why is Scientology so focused and so driven on just this very narrow minded view of psychiatry? And I had to come back around to Hubbard and back around to his intentions And the fact that he was straight up hypnotizing people and calling it psychotherapy with Dianetics and with the rest of auditing, if you've seen my recent podcasts, then you realize L. Ron Hubbard was just throwing you a curve the entire time and knocking the competition because he didn't like them because they had rejected him and his fragile, so, so fragile ego just could not deal with that rejection. And so he felt he had to do everything he could to absolutely destroy what he thought was his enemy. And that was the mindset of L. Ron Hubbard about so many things, uh, right? Especially psychiatry. So that was the full circle. I, I, I kind of went into a whole bunch of stuff there. You asked, right? So that's my answer is it's, it's kind of complicated. I went through a lot. Coming to these conclusions, and I've gone through now, of course, a whole, you know, master's, I've now got a master's degree in psychology, right? Which, believe me, when I was a Scientologist, that's the last thing I ever thought was going to come out of my mouth, is that I am, you know, well-studied and educated in psychology. Uh, you know, but that's, that's where the road takes you, right? So, so it's, uh, you know, so it's all in good fun. Anyway, I hope that um, that my answer clarified my journey, my my path of discovery there, what I was trying to to do and where I've come to now. And um, this was I'm not going to go any further into my, you know, any more screeds here about modern psychiatry. Um, I just wanted to answer that question as completely as I could. So there you go, Steph. Oscar Q. Zilch. If you take Scientology doctrine seriously, the monitoring of N-theta on the Internet and on television seems to present a number of serious ethical dilemmas. If you outsource the task to non-Scientologists, you run the risk of undetected SPs in their ranks sabotaging the job. Alternatively, you are ruining the eternity of non-suppressive non-Scientologists by exposing them to deadly secrets like Xenu. If you give the job to a fanatic in OSA who has gone up the bridge, would you not be condemning that person to a life of sickness and unhappiness?" What a great question, Oscar. Thank you for uh, considering those various possibilities there. And I believe this is why, and I was happy that, uh, that Catherine could tell me about this guy in OSA, who's this older guy, if you didn't hear my interview with Catherine, she mentioned that she knew the guy who worked at OSA who was the internet guy. And apparently this is the guy who was online looking at stuff all day and having to police, you know, or or find and take notes on all the awful, horrible N-theta that is talked about with Scientology all day, every day on the, on the interwebs. Okay, so what do you do with this person? Well, this was a guy who worked at OSA. Now, do they have other people who work for them who are not Scientologists scouring the internet for things maybe. I'm actually not sure. We do know that they hire and contract out PIs and lawyers to do their dirty work. So when it comes to internet, dirty works, whether they're trolling or uh, maybe coming after me or Mark or Aaron or Karen or whoever, right, or Tony, hacking emails or going after documents or, you know, research or stuff like that, they'll probably outsource that kind of thing. But Given the Scientology mindset, I would find it hard to believe that they would knowingly outsource to a non-Scientologist that they have to go scouring through OT data on the Internet and report back on what they find. I don't think they're going to do that for the, the, the very principle of the thing. Even at OSA, they are Scientologists and they believe it's true. So they're not going to want to damage somebody. that They would consider that an overt to themselves. That would be a moral transgression for them to expose a non-Scientologist to OT information under any circumstances. They just I just don't think they'd be okay with that. Um, not if they still maintain a Scientology viewpoint. If you've got an OSA staff member who doesn't really care about all those wogs out there... And I'm sorry for using that term, but that's the term they use, and that's the only reason I use it. Um, If that's how they're thinking, they're really not even Scientologists anymore, right? That's just evil. And uh, from that perspective, with that information they have. On the other hand, you could have, theoretically, some guy in OSA who just doesn't believe it. But how long is that person going to last, and why would they stay in OSA if they didn't believe all of this stuff? So... That's kind of, those scenarios don't really ring true. It seems much, much, much more likely that when it comes to OT information on the internet, they're only going to trust, uh, you know, tried and true proven uh, operating thetans among them. Which is why this guy's probably pissed off all the time because he's probably overloaded because he's probably the only OT that they've gotten OSA who they could spare to do that work or who they could put on that work. I don't know how many people in OSA are actually OT. I would not assume all of them are because most of the uh, OSA staff I knew were not OT. Uh, All the ones in uh, OSA West US, I think the highest one was OT3. So, you know, so so technically, theoretically speaking, they're not even allowed to go on the Internet and look at OT stuff. Uh, Because who knows what they might be exposed to, right? OT3 is a low-level OT compared to an OT8. All kinds of goodies and data that they're not supposed to be exposed to yet. So you know, so odds are you're going to need to find a high level OT. Now, we've already covered um, in a in a critical conversations a few weeks ago when I was talking about Tom Cruise's ego. I sort of broke down what the auditing is like on the OT levels and how in how ego inflating it is. J- applies just as much to OSA. OTs as it would otherwise. But beyond the ego pump, I found it interesting that this guy was, was kind of pissed off all the time. That that sounded right to me. But, but theoretically, you've asked me here a question about Scientology doctrine and how Scientologists would think about this. So let me tell you very quickly that theoretically, in the world of Scientology, if you're OT-8, and you go on the internet looking at all the n-theta OT data that's there, you should not be affected in any way because you know what the true OT data is, and you'd be able to spot uh, what they would call altered, right, uh, OT, or they'd call it is, but altered or changed or modified or corrupted OT data. You'd recognize it right away. you go, yeah, that's not what, that's not what's on OT8. That's not what's on OT7, right? Or, alternately, oh, yeah, that's that's what it is. They got it on there. Now, that alone might upset you as being a Scientologist, but it's not going to make you sick. It's not going to rile you up. And it certainly isn't going to create a situation where you would necessarily be an unhappy OT. You would just be upset about the fact that, you know, oh, wow, there's OT data there on the Internet. People are going to see and it's going to hurt them. That sucks, right? It would affect you the same way you, probably you, the viewer right now, would be affected by hearing about, you know, some Scientology atrocity tale or some other bad news in the world where people are going to potentially be hurt or even killed by something. And you, you know, you get upset by that. You get outraged about it. You tweet about it. You post about it. You talk about it. You try to do something about it, maybe. (laughs) Maybe. Maybe. Um, that's how they're going to feel, right, about that. So they're going to be upset, but it's not going to make them sick because they're not going to be PTS, a potential trouble source. That's not going to happen to them because the reason you become PTS, and this is all theoretical, right, within the Scientology belief set, the reason you become PTS is because you commit overts moral transgressions. You do something bad to the suppressive. And that's what weakens you. That's the chink in your armor. See, that's what lets the bad in is you do that. You go commit some overt against them and then they can, their suppression against you now will be effective. Whereas if you were able to face them, full-on confronting, dealing with, I'm going to challenge, I'm going to face up to you, I'm not afraid of you, doesn't even have to necessarily be challenging. You could just confront them. If you can just look at them and see them for what they are, then a suppressive person wouldn't affect you, see, (sighs) theoretically. You know, Scientology has changed so much now, and the way Miscavige deals with this stuff is, you know, who knows? Who knows what they think now in Scientology? But this is what L. Ron Hubbard wrote. So an OT8 who isn't PTS should be able to go to work every day, look at as much crap as as he could look at, pack it up, go to lunch, go to dinner, go home at the end of the night and be unscathed by all of it, right? Theoretically, that should be the case. Practically speaking, though, we know that's not the case. And when it couldn't be the case because people are not uh, PTS or not PTS. People are people. And even somebody who pretends to be a supernatural super being of OT8 caliber is still going to have their buttons pushed and their biases pressed on and their cognitive dissonance activated every time they run into things that upset them. And, uh, and uh, that's, you know, the reality of it. So anyway, a long answer to a pretty simple question there. But thanks for asking, Oscar. And I hope that answer uh, brought some illumination. Rainbow Cat, in re-listening to Tom Cruise's Medal of Valor acceptance speech, something stuck out to me which I am curious about. It's not how to run from an SP, it's how to confront and shatter suppression. Because they don't come up to me and do that to my face or anywhere in my vicinity where they feel they can be confronted, they just don't. So what is the magic technology Tom has that prevents people coming up to him and opposing him? Thank you for asking this, and I love ranting about Tom Cruise, as you guys know, so I'll rant some more. Um, but in terms of answering his this question directly, I will say, first off, Tom Cruise's superpowers are money, uh, celebrity status, and celebrity privilege. Those are the things that keep people from saying anything to him that are honest and true. People are afraid of Tom Cruise. People are afraid of Tom Cruise's power. People are afraid of what he could do to them. People want access to him, celebrities, TMZ, celebrity media, stuff like that. Everybody wants a piece of something from him. And as one of the more powerful uh, celebrities in the world, that is a legit concern for him, right? Because not everybody is his pal or friend or wants to contribute to his causes, but they sure want a piece of him and his influence and his money. So, as with any celebrity at that level, you are going to have to build an inner circle of people that you legit fully trust, or trust as much as you are capable of trusting. And that inner circle is going to have to be the, the the fielders and the and your team, basically, to keep off, stave off the uh, the nonsense and the. Um, excuse me, bad influences that might come around into your orbit. Every high-level celebrity has to deal with that kind of thing. That's why they have agents and PR managers and, uh, you know, assistants and all that kind of stuff it's necessary at that level. These are problems that, you know, people like me, I'm not a celebrity, I'm just a low-level YouTuber, right? I mean, when you move up into this into this rarefied air of being a true celebrity, especially over time, over years, where there's staying power, you only maintain that power by keeping everything close to the vest and keeping things private and running your life in a very kind of controlled fashion. Um, you know, we see the kids celebrities, the young uh, men and women celebrities in their 20s and whatnot who don't have all this structure and support system in place yet, and they're a bunch of wild childs, right? And they run around and they make a hash of things and, and their lives are a mess and they get over, you know, OD'd and all this and that and the other thing because they don't yet have a real support system or they think they don't have to listen to that support system, right? They're young and dumb and, you know, all the rest, um just like anybody would be at that age right but you know you throw a bunch of money at somebody and drugs and somebody who's you know who who isn't quite ready for it yet and things tend to blow up in their life but either they get past that they survive it and they figure this out and they build a support system anyway or they don't and they don't survive it so this is kind of celebrity survival 101. every celebrity is what i'm trying to stress here Now we get to Tom Cruise and we're talking about severe celebrity privilege because Tom Cruise is an ultra controlling megalomaniac kind of narcissist authority guy. And that's who he really is. I wanted to say if you guys, um, you know, I've said this in a few other places, if you guys want to really kind of get a picture of what life is like in Tom Cruise's world, go watch the boys. And, uh, and watch Homelander, right? Especially this season, right? Season three, where he is, he's just, you know, the gloves are off. He's able to do whatever he wants. And so now you're seeing, you know, the dictator problem as it's been, as I've seen it referred to, right? Where now you can only, now your support system is the only group of people you can trust. Uh, and that's kind of the, the situation Tom is in. But he also pushes back on anyone. See, I, let me step back a second depending on the personality of the celebrity is going to depend a great deal on how they choose to interact with the world beyond that inner circle, right? What's their, There's a branding and PR presence there. How do they want people to think about them? But then there's the reality of how they actually act and what they actually think and what they actually say and who they say it to and who they're willing to have hear it. So some celebrities are much more transparent than others Tom Cruise is not a transparent guy um, there's a lot of good reasons for that but there's also the sort of negative ends of his personality behind some of that for example Tom Cruise and it, again this is not just him I mean if I'm really being honest it's really not just him but him in particular, I will say, um, he is never under any circumstance in in any format of any interview, any public interaction, any stage presence situation, um, basically any time he's in the public eye, he is never going to let anyone ask him about Scientology unless it's all pre-set up and his answer is just pat, boom, here it is. Right, as he did, as he did a little bit in the um, in the early mid two thousands, uh, and we saw where that went. Right, he tried to take the gloves off. He tried to, you know, express himself a little bit, and look what happened. Everybody called him crazy, because that's what Scientology is. It's crazy, and it makes him crazy, and so that got bottled up right away. Right, that was like, hey, that's it. Paramount shut him down, and his manager shut him down, and other people shut him down. I mean, people were just like, you can't be doing this, right? You need to stop. And if you don't stop, there are going to be consequences you are not going to enjoy uh, experiencing, right? So he did, he stopped, and he hasn't said a damn word about Scientology in years in any public forum. And he goes to Scientology events, and maybe he talks it up there, and maybe he talks it up privately with Simon Pegg or something, I don't know, but he doesn't talk about it publicly anymore, and he refuses to. And his... His inner circle and his agents and his managers and his people make sure of that because those are his wishes. He doesn't want to talk about it for obvious reasons, right? Okay. So, when you ask, you know, what's this magic technology, well, that is the actual answer to the question. Right? I, I, I know that this might have been asking about the Scientology side of it. but. That was actually answered in my, last, in my last answer, the whole PTSSP thing, right? You're supposed to be able to confront suppression. I'll just, I'll just reiterate it here real fast. Is you're supposed to confront suppression, and because you can stand up to it, and because you don't have any moral failings of your own in regards to this suppressive person, they don't have any effect on you. you are, they are powerless to hurt you, influence you, abuse you, or traumatize you. Well, all of that's complete horseshit. Uh, it is not moral transgressions that make you weak or affect or or ineffective against uh, an abuser and a predator. Predators and abusers, you know, prey and abuse. <laughs> that's what they do, and it doesn't have anything to do with your moral relationship with them as to whether they can do that to you or not. But Tom Cruise buys into that crap because he's a Scientologist and he's got the he's got filters so dark over his eyes that he's he really can't hardly see the world at all. Um, he sees his own world, you know, and so in his own world, like with other Scientologists, they get the luxury of getting to believe that they are superheroes, that they have superpowers, that they are supernaturally gifted, and that because they will something, like because they intend something to be true, it's true. That's what they think. That's how I used to think. So I know the mindset well. Uh, it is a common it's a Scientology disease it is uh, unfortunately that that whole thing um, is not just contained in Scientology that's the secret that's that you know that whole like thought process this magical thinking that because you think something the world is going to bend to your will it's a total fantasy right it has nothing to do with reality but when you're in a bubble world it's easy to imagine that that's true and every single thing that happens in the real world when you find your keys the traffic lights change somebody calls you out of the blue that you were just thinking about you know all these coincidences happen they will assign causation to it they'll say i did that because i was thinking a thing look what happened you know magic that's how tom cruise believes People don't just come up to him and challenge him, right? Um, But he doesn't believe it so hard that he doesn't instruct his PR people that they better not ask me any of those stupid Scientology questions, right? You know he's directing that, too. And let's not forget, of course, that within that inner circle of Tom Cruise are Sea Org members and Scientologists, right? He is absolutely, his entire life is infiltrated top to bottom with Scientologists, so even if he were to start having doubts, reservations, problems, or issues like he did through the 1990s when he was married to Nicole and he was all but getting out of that you know, nonsense, um, they're monitoring him very, very closely so that if anything were to come up like that, they would at least be all over trying to fix that and, you know, and contain that. So I hope that answers the question. There you go. Barney Saunders. Are there any criteria that you would use to decide which individuals would and would not appear on your podcast and channel? I'm asking this question because I would like to know your opinion on the boundaries of acceptable dialogue. Anyone in the world of cult studies knows the importance of dialogue in getting people to change their mind. Take the example of Daryl Davis, who goes out of his way to befriend and speak to racial extremists, the Ku Klux Klan, and, in so doing, has helped to de-radicalize them, which is one of the best case studies illustrating the benefits of dialogue. John Atak also made a noble attempt to converse with Andy Nolch in the hope of helping him open his mind. Are there any individuals who you would never, under any circumstances, invite onto your show or accept their request to appear on your show? For example, what about the cult apologists, such as Riza Aslan, or the new religious movement academics? Okay, Barney, thank you very much for asking me this question. Um, okay, so first you said I'm asking the question because you want to know your my opinion on the boundaries of acceptable dialogue. I think as long as dialogue is is discourse is rational, is you know is fact based, is is moderated, maybe. Um, on that degree or on those ideas, then I think I, I think it's absolutely vital and necessary and important and essential, all of those words and more, that people be allowed to say what is on their mind and that there be open forums where people can communicate, whether it's conversational, whether it's a town hall sort of thing, whether it's a YouTube channel. People should be able to say what's on their mind. Um, but we need to always have our lines drawn in the sand in terms of incitement. I am concerned about incitement. And um, civility, right, and rationality. I mean, it, sure, people should be able to say what's on their mind, but the context matters, right? I'm not going to invite you know, a, a, a pedophile pushing Nazi onto my channel because of freedom of speech. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not going to say that individual should have a um, muzzle placed over their mouth 24-7. I don't believe that, but I don't believe I need to give them a bullhorn either. Uh, So if I have deep personal ethical issues with what somebody is saying or doing, I'm probably not going to be super keen on talking to them on my channel. I've also have to keep in mind, in terms of you asking me this question, I have to keep in mind the focus and subject matter of my channel. I don't just talk about anything and everything. So obviously, um, the people I'm going to invite onto my show or accept, you know, requests to be on my show and I, and both have happened many, many times, um, only from people that I think you guys are going to want to hear from and be interested in, and that it's going to have some kind of, you know, relevancy to my mission and what I'm trying to do here. Um, you know, I could go off on all kinds of tangents and have sometimes in the past and didn't really get a whole lot of love for that, right? So I was like, okay, well, not going to go off in that direction, right? So, you know, there's, there's topics and shows I'd love to do, uh, you know, from time to time about movies or, you know, things like that. But, you know, you guys aren't generally very interested in that and that's okay. This is not a criticism of you. It's a recognition that you guys are watching me for a, for a certain thing. And so I have to keep that in mind all the time too, I don't think, given the way and, and the flavor and sort of, uh, you know, uh, subject matter of my channel, I, I, I'm not a big debater. I'm not somebody who wants to get into online or, or verbal or whatever Zoom chat arguments with people. I would rather, and I've tailored my interviews and shows from the very beginning to, to, to have a let's get along. Let's have a conversation. Let's like actually dialogue. And if I could talk with people who disagree with me and I could have a rational back and forth with them, I am more than happy to. Those are the kind of conversations I crave. Unfortunately, the Internet doesn't crave those conversations. The Internet craves uh, conflict and arguments and, uh, you know, people yelling at each other and stuff like that. And they call that debate. And I don't. I call that nonsense. Uh, I don't I don't really get a whole lot of anything out of that. And so the last thing I want to do as a content creator is create content I hate, <laughs> right? I kind of want to want to like my work. So I want to talk to people who I believe can forward the dialogue and the discourse, or, you know, the ideas that I'm presenting here, and help me to, you know, elaborate on or clarify or discuss, these topics. Um, That's always been kind of my attitude. I'm not, you know, I was never in debate in high school or college or whatever. I'm not a debater. I'm not educated on debate on rhetoric and all the tricks of it, you know, and I also don't appreciate debate as a thing because it's not about rational facts and evidence. It's about rhetorical tricks and it's about overwhelming your opponent and with, you know, with maybe facts you know, you watch the gish go that, uh, that, um, Oh God, some of these people get up to, and, um, it's just not at all what I want to present to you guys on my channel. So, um, so I don't go in those, you know, Ben Shapiro, that's what I was trying to struggle with thinking there. Right. But even, uh, even, the, you know, the, um, People who have agendas, I don't know. I just, I just not, 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 it's hard for me to want to engage with that. You know, Arisa Aslan, a new religious movement scholar, absolutely. I would absolutely bring somebody like that on board onto my channel and have a discussion with them because I know the discussion could be civil and we could engage at the level of the ideas and not make it personal and all, and all weird and stuff like that. Um, I got a, you know, you all got a little tiny taste of that with uh, my engagement with the midnight Mormon guy, uh, you know, a, f- a couple months ago, right when John Streeter invited me onto his channel and we did that show, and and I ended up engaging with somebody who couldn't critically think his way out of a wet paper bag. It was it was embarrassing. I tried to engage with this guy for hours. I tried, and it was just a useless effort. There was no busting through this guy's. Inability to confront the fact that he just didn't get it right. He was just unwilling to acknowledge the fact that he could ever have been wrong about anything, and it was it was very very difficult to engage with that for me. Um, I acknowledge that I am wrong about things all the time, and I and I I, I pride myself on it because it's how I learn. Right. I, I want to engage with people who can show me that I might not be right about something, but I don't want to engage with in a scenario like that one. Right. And that was me doing my best. <laughs> so so I will admit that perhaps some of the reason why I might not want to engage with some of the, you know, the more awful that is possible to engage with out there is because I find it personally upsetting. I don't think it particularly forwards my message. And um and I just, you know, I just find it um, distasteful in a way. I, I, I don't know. I hope, that, I hope that comes across. Not in a bad way, I hope. Anyway, um, I would definitely like to, and I have actually reached out to, okay, for example, we reached out to Teal Swan. Now, she's not going to come on my show. Uh, we got a very polite response back that that's not going to happen. But I would have loved to have engaged with her. Oh, man, that would be an interview for the ages. I'd love to do something like that, right? Um, so I am more than happy to engage with people who have very, very, very different ideas than I do. But like I said, I need it to, I need it to stay at a certain level before I'll, I'll, I'll feel comfortable with doing that. So anyway, uh, hope that all makes sense. And there you go. Okay, let's do some flash answers. Jonathan Perry. Your last clip about a Scientology front group that is a school for kids made me wonder what is the youngest age you could be to start auditing. I believe the official age is around eight years old, but I've seen, um, I think I've seen a kid as young as six get some official auditing. But I don't think you're supposed to actually do it under eight. If I think that's what L. Ron Hubbard said, somewhere around there, seven or eight years old. And that's according to, I think, Child Dianetics and uh, child Scientology. Clive, do you know what's happened to the Fair Game podcast? Last I remember was that they were taking a week off and there's been nothing since. Clive, I asked Leah about this directly, actually, because I just thought I'd go right to the source. And she said they're definitely coming back bigger and better than ever. So that's what I can tell you right now. I don't have a date or a time for you on that. Uh, you'll have to keep posted uh, and follow Leah on Twitter or, you know, whatever to get that information. But it is definitely going to have at least another season. Nick C. You recently mentioned that Scientologists who own eMeters, except the latest model, must periodically send their e-meters in for recertification. But who actually does the work testing and calibrating the devices? Sea Org members? Or is the church contracted an outside company for this? E-meter uh, silver certification was always done in-house. Sea Org members did it. There was a whole line set up, uh, physical property and a, and a, you know, literally line of people at desks uh, set up. It was it was the HEM, H-E-M, Hubbard E-meter line, and it was uh, always part of gold. Uh, it was part of Golden Era Productions, and so the there was – it was um, – Back in the 1980s, it was located at Big Blue in Pack. That was where all the meters went, and then that got moved to Gold at some point after that and stayed there. And then when the Mark Eight came out, I guess they do it online or digitally or something now. But if you sent an e-meter into Scientology, it's serviced, it would probably end up going to Golden Air Productions in the um, the place out in San Jacinto. All right. Well, that is our show for this week. I hope my answers were informative, educational, and maybe entertaining. Uh, dug deep on a few of them. I hope that, uh, I hope that came across well. I will uh, watch you guys, or rather, I will see you guys next week. Thanks for coming around and inviting me into your home. And as always, I will end off by asking um, that if you are finding the show and my channel, Informative, Educational, and Entertaining please do consider supporting me through Patreon, PayPal, Venmo, or any of the uh, whatever links I've got down in the description section of this and every one of my videos. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye.